0: Hello and welcome to Times Tall Tales. Today, myself and Jordan are joined by the wonderful Dr. Peter Little from the University of Manchester, who has very kindly come to talk to us about some ancient Athenian inscriptions. So, Peter, what's um, what is this project that you've been working on?
1: Well, hi Laura, hi Jordan. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm going to tell you about this project which uh, I've been working on for a couple of years now. Um, And the project aims to publish uh, and uh, make available um, ancient Athenian inscriptions uh, which are currently kept in the UK. So all of them are non-Indigenous inscriptions Um, and they found their way somehow to the UK. Um, If it's okay, I'm gonna uh, share my screen and show you a few slides, um, which I'm just bringing up now, because I want to give you the wider context of the project and the the wider context of the project is a website um, I've been working on, Um, with Stephen Lambert of Cardiff University and Holly Lowe of the University of Durham for a number of years. And this uh, website aims to translate all ancient Athenian inscriptions um, that are known. There is is about 20,000 of these inscriptions. Um, uh, which survive from antiquity from the 7th century BC on to the 3rd century AD. So we've got a big job in trying to translate all of these and offer historical explanations of them. We've done about 2,000 so far, so we've done a big chunk of them, but there's still a very long way to go. It's been going for about nine years, um, but we're hoping to to carry it on as far as we can. Now. We've also got, um, associated with this, our own uh, YouTube channels, so if you're feeling really inspired uh, by uh, the content of this podcast, then um, please uh, feel free to uh, join Attic Inscriptions online. It's got uh, 86 subscribers, um, maybe we can bolster that a bit, um, we're, we're adding videos all the time. Um, Specifically, um, our project concentrates on the ancient Athenian inscriptions which are in UK collections. And there are probably about 225 of those. We call them non-Indigenous Greek inscriptions because they were produced originally um, in ancient Athens. They're not, They're not. well an indigenous Greek inscription of which there are a small handful um, in Britain would be uh, an inscription written in Greek produced in antiquity in a place like Chester or an ancient settlement. But we're interested in the non-indigenous inscriptions. One of the reasons for being interested in them, in them I think, is that they have an interesting modern history behind them. When we're looking at any um, texts or objects from antiquity, I think it's important to think about the modern reception of it. How did that object come to survive, or how did that text get to be copied out? When we're looking at um, Athenian inscriptions, we're asking, well, how did they come to, to? How did they come to survive? How did they come to end up in the UK? And there are lots of stories about how they ended up in the UK. And I've taken two examples to get us started. One is that of this woman on the left, who's facing away from you, um, Mary Hamilton Campbell, Lady Ruthven. Um, who lived from 1789 to 1885? She was a member of the aristocracy, and she was an artist, and had an an interest in ancient Greece. She also was lucky enough to have a residence in Vuliagmini just to the south of Athens on the sunny coast to the south of Athens and um, she happens to have uh, during her time in Athens stumbled across a couple of ancient Athenian inscriptions which ended up in her castle in Scotland at Winton Castle Um, and these inscriptions um, have remained in Scotland ever since then Uh, When she died in the 1880s, they were bequeathed to the uh, National Gallery of Scotland, and they're still there. They haven't been very well publicised. They're in the storerooms of the museum, and I'm hoping that our project will give them a bit more publicity. Um, I think the other example of a famous traveller, a famous collector, um, has to be... Um, Thomas Bruce, the 7th Earl of Elgin, and he's a very famous person in terms of um, antiquities and collecting. He was, um, and I think it's important to remember, that he was a member of the British aristocracy. Um, a very uh, prominent um, uh, Scottish aristocrat with, with land in Scotland. And he was also a member of the UK's or the British diplomatic service in the late 18th century. And as part of that, he spent time in Constantinople working for the British Embassy there. He made links, he employed brokers who would collect antiquities on his behalf. Very famously, he collected the sculptures that had become known as the Elgin marbles. So, um, in the first decade of the 19th century, Elgin brought hundreds of marbles uh, from Athens uh, to the UK. There are debates, ethical debates, about whether this was um, an appropriate thing for him to do. Um, Some people have described the removal of marbles from the Acropolis, the removal of the Parthenon frieze from the temple of, uh, of, of Athena on the Acropolis as an act of vandalism. So Elgin collected these marbles or had them collected by his agent um, and um, early in the 19th century he had them sent to his home in London and there are fascinating stories that surround the, um, the, the uh, collection of these marbles. One story says that he had a written permit known in Turkish as a fear man to remove the marbles but anyway he packaged them up some of them got uh, were were put on a ship that sank um, and had to be rescued in dramatic circumstances, but anyway, by by the end of the first decade of the nineteenth century, he'd brought them to the UK. Now, Elgin had his own personal troubles. Um, He was arrested uh, by French forces crossing Europe, spent time as a prisoner of war um, under the Napoleonic forces. Um, he, um, He went through an expensive divorce as well, which left him bankrupt. And what did he do to try to address this problem that he had? Well, he tried to sell his marbles and after long discussions Um, the UK Parliament agreed to purchase his marbles in 1816 for £35,000. And Elgin, well, he wanted more but um, other people uh, didn't want to give him so much. But he parted company with the marbles, or many of his marbles anyway, in 1816, and the UK Parliament passed them to the relatively new uh, British Museum, where Many of them have been on display, but some of them, like this inscription, a set of Athenian financial accounts from the 410s BC, have been in storerooms. So, um, it's our project then to um, publish these inscriptions on our website, make them accessible for the first time to everybody, regardless of whether they know Greek or have access to libraries, but it's also part of our um, uh, aim to facilitate understanding of the imperialistic forces that led to these inscriptions being collected at the British Museum. So that's the sort of background to the project. Um, I'll go on now, unless you want to ask questions at this point, um, to talk about three particular examples of um inscriptions which are at the British Museum so um,
2: could I just ask um about the Elgin marbles uh, you were saying about them through uh, not so clean means getting to the UK um I wonder if you knew more about the disputed ownership of them
1: yeah um so um I mean the the dispute um starts out really with this um, this permit, the fear man, which um, Elgin or Elgin's agents possessed, um, which was um, granted to him by the Ottoman rulers of Greece. Um, so Greece at that time, um, in 1801, or the early, the early part of the 19th century, was uh, administered by the uh, the Ottoman Empire. It wasn't an independent state, and um, Elgin's permission then was granted by these Turkish rulers of Athens. So, many people would take the view that actually the permit that he had. Um, as it was not Greek, or was not authenticated by a Greek, was invalid from the start. So that's um, one uh, one side of the debate. On the other hand, um, you could argue that, well, this uh, permit was granted by the people who made the laws of the Greeks at that time, and it granted him the right to remove marbles and to remove inscriptions as far as he saw fit. Um, So there are two sides to that debate, I suppose, about whether um, uh, he had legal permission to remove the marbles. Um, But he did nonetheless, and, uh, and what's more, he sold them for a substantial sum of money.
0: I think that almost makes it... A little bit more dubious in a way. I mean, you know, at the time, technically, yes, they did leave legally, but you know, selling them on sort of disputes this idea of ownership. I think it's quite—it's all a very big grey area. I think is how it would how it would come out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, now, um, on the one hand, um, for the the most the most famous of the Elgin Marbles are the uh, the pre, the Frieze uh, and the Metopes of the Parthenon, and um, in Greece um, there is a relatively new museum where they could be displayed, um, and could be displayed in view of the modern Acropolis. Um, but um, there are many other marbles, like the one that you're looking at here now, which are probably less amenable to immediate display. They require conservation and looking after. And there isn't an obvious place where they would be uh, displayed in, a the- in an Athenian museum. So I think it makes sense to ask on each individual, in each individual case, would it be a good thing for them to be returned to Athens? And in fact, would the Athenian museum authorities actually want all of the Elgin marbles um, because they would have to uh, look after them um, and you know museum storerooms are are notoriously short of space and difficult to organize.
0: Mm, I think mean, it's yeah I, I agree with what you say saying about sort of the, the case by case scenario mm-hmm. I guess and that leads quite nicely into uh, some of mm-hmm. the examples that you mentioned earlier of some inscriptions yeah. that you've been working on.
1: Sure okay well the first one is this one, and um, you can see that it's a a slab of marble in very good condition, and uh, it may originally have had some kind of painting um, on the uh, the top of the finial. So it's a what we call a steely or a marble slab uh, with a rounded top. Um, there is a sunken panel, which is fairly standard for Athenian grave monuments, representing probably the person who it uh, commemorates. And above um, that depiction is her name, which is Hoirine, um which, um, if you know a bit of Greek, uh, modern Greek or ancient Greek, you will know means piglet or Miss Piggy. Um, And it's an unusual name, Um, and um, there are debates about, well, is this an appropriate name to give to a woman, and probably a woman who was of relatively high status? It's It's an interesting question. Um this marble was is in the British Museum, it's in the storerooms of the British Museum, but it's not one of the Elgin marbles actually. Um and it's it's one of the inscriptions which um demonstrates that it wasn't just British travellers um who um, picked up ancient marbles on their travels other imperial powers were also at it as well. Um, The French, so this uh, particular marble was acquired from Eleusis in the western part of Attica in 1819 by a French Rear Admiral and It was actually acquired by the British Museum through the art market in 2007. So, um, it's travelled through Europe quite slowly. Um, It's it's deemed as kosher though, um, to buy things from the art market as long as they have a history that goes back before 1970. Um, that's a, that's the sort of the sort of the sort of watershed. If you can't trace the history of a of, a, of an antiquity before um, uh, 1970, um, uh, then it's regarded as as problematic. Um, so um, uh, so this has been known since the early 19th century. So we know something about how it was acquired. Um, if, for instance, uh, somebody approached you and said you want to buy this antiquity, but they weren't able to offer it, offer its history, um, then you'd regard that with suspicion, and it would be deemed as, as problematic. Um, and my colleague Roberta Mazza has done really lots of important work on um, the problems with the, the modern antiquities uh, market, and, and a lot of her work um, um, demonstrates why it's so problematic. So, a bit more about the content of this uh, funerary monument and it's always important, I think, to look closely at objects because the more closely we look at them, the more we can understand about them. You can see that Huirinae is is elaborately clothed she's wearing um, over her undergarments something called a peplos um, and the peplos was an important robe for Athenian identity the Athenians clothed their statue of Athena with a peplos so that says something about her status and perhaps about her involvement in religion you can see also that she is wearing a wreath and Greeks wore wreaths on all sorts of occasions to celebrate um, uh, to uh, indicate that somebody was being honoured in a particular way. But the other important thing about the way that Huirine is depicted is what she is holding in her right hand and the interpretation of this is that it's a big key. This is how keys looked in the early 4th century BC. Now, it's probably a key to a temple. That's the general um, consensus that um, indicates that Koinene was the overseer or maybe priestess for particular color. It was. It's interesting, though, that it was seen appropriate de- to depict women on funerary monuments, either as priestesses or as mothers or as parents. Um, that's a reflection of ancient Greek views of women. I think in this case showing a woman with the key to a temple is particularly striking because perhaps it indicates that she's the sort of overseer of the house of a deity and Women in ancient Greece were often associated with household management. So this is a sort of feminine extension of um, uh, religious duties. The woman is seen as having the duty of looking after the house of the uh, deity. We can say uh, a bit more about the possible context uh, from the records that we have that this was acquired in Eleusis. If Choyananer was commemorated at a place close to the location of the cult where she was a priestess, it's just possible that she was a priestess of uh, Demeter. The Eleusinian Mysteries, of course, very famously um, uh, commemorated uh, Demeter and, uh, of course, were celebrated at Eleusis might also be relevant, that peak sacrifice was uh, part of the Eleusinian mysteries, and maybe that's a reason um, that uh, uh, the name hoirene was seen as appropriate to, um, uh, somebody with the name hoirene was seen as an appropriate person to hold a religious office in this particular cult, but it may just be coincidence. So, um, yeah, they're the they're the basic elements of this particular inscription, and I think it's important to pay it attention because it gives us insight into the ways in which women could be represented um, in ancient Greek society.
2: Could I just ask? Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, it might seem like a bit of a stupid
2: question, but would Hirona be a nickname or would
1: it be her actual name? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question and um, we do know a bit about nicknames in um uh, ancient Greece. So uh, there's another inscription, for instance, in Liverpool, which um, somebody is called Fish Face, or well, somebody has the name which literally means <laughs> Fish Face. Not very <laughs> complimentary. And often nicknames are not complimentary, but um, it's a bit harsh, isn't it, commemorating somebody with, with the name Hoirene. You know, Piggy or Miss Piggy. Um, I think that's a bit harsh. And I suppose the other reason I don't think it's a nickname is that often people, when they were uh, commemorated with their nicknames, they would be commemorated with their real name as well. Um, so it's possible um, that that this was her nickname, um, but not not decisively so. Um. Okay. Shall I move on to the next one, um, because yeah. this takes us into a different world really. Um, it's a, a decree, so another type of, of inscriptions that the ancient Athenian pre- ancient Athenians produced were decrees. Um, decrees were things written up on uh, stone, excuse me. <coughs> Things which were well decrees were basically decisions made by their assemblies, um, and in uh, in the fifth century BC, as you probably know, Athens was a democracy of sorts. So the people's assembly, which was or could be attended by all adult uh, citizen males. Um, made decisions which were binding for all Athenians. And in the 5th century BC, when the Athenians had their own empire, it made decisions that were binding also for Athens' imperial subjects. And um, if you learn about 5th century BC history, one of the phenomena that you'll learn about is the Athenian Empire and the way that it treated its uh, member states. So by the 420s BC the Athenians were involved in the Peloponnesian War and it was very clear by this time that they were using taxes or tribute taken from their imperial subjects to fight the war with the Spartans. And this is a decree that the Athenians made and then wrote up on stone. Uh, You can see it's very clearly written. It's written with this pattern known as stoichedon, so a a strict grid pattern with the letters all lined up. And there is some debate about whether this made uh, inscriptions easier or harder to read because uh, there are no line breaks at the end uh, or syllabic breaks at the end. What matters to the person cutting this inscription is that the letters fit into this grid plan. Um, So, what does it say? Because that's important too. Well, it tells us about some of the procedures that the Athenians used for writing up or for recording the tribute. And it demanded that um, city-states that were paying their tribute to the Athenians would write down the amount that they were sending to Athens in a sealed uh, writing tablet and that this would be sent to the Athenian council so that the Athenians could open the sealed tablet, uh, verify the amount and then verify the amount of silver that they had received from their uh, allies. So it's a good indication about the lengths to which the Athenians went to ensuring that they received the right amount of silver that their allies had coughed up. It tells um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt
2: again. Um, it might be a bit of a weird cultural comparison, but um, I was learning not that long ago about Mesopotamia and some of the earliest economic practices, and they used um, sealed clay balls mm. with little uh, tokens inside um, so that when they were doing trade, they could then open it up on the receiving end and see how much it is and it's weird to see that little uh, cultural, yeah. the cross-cultural um, comparison yeah. in that yeah. way.
1: It's interesting isn't it, sort of um, checking that, or ensuring or trying to ensure that you've got the right amount of money um, in a particular place is something common to, uh, to ancient societies, several uh, ancient societies as well as modern ones. Um and um, I suppose it's well, it's in the administrator's interest to make sure that um, uh, the right amount of money is received um, on any occasion. Um, but it shows another use of writing as well. Um, writing is something that um, is important in uh, public contexts so the funerary context that we've seen um, the administrative context of this the honorific context of the next inscription that we're going to look at but writing is also important for details and monitoring uh, things Um, one of the sort of stereotypes that greeks had about about tyrannical societies is that they used writing for sort of secretive uh, methods. Um, Plato, for instance, the philosopher, the fourth century philosopher, is a critic of writing because he thinks that um, the best kind of um, argumentation can be formed through oral communication rather than than written communication. So, I suppose it sort of reminds us about the different uses of writing um, uh, that, that, that we encounter in in Greek culture. Mm-hmm.
0: I just have one quick question about the decree itself, rather than like the actual content. Mm. What, <clears throat> Who is actually going to read the decree? Because mm. obviously I'm not entirely sure about literacy rates, but as you said, it's it's quite a complicated looking decree. Yeah. Who is it actually for?
1: Mm. That's a really good question, because um, we uh, believe that this inscription was written up on the Acropolis. That's where Elgin found it. Um, And there's an interesting discussion about, well, if you're writing up your decrees on the Acropolis, who's going to read them? Because the Acropolis was a sort of religious and ceremonial place. It wasn't the marketplace. It wasn't the kind of place where people lived or where people travelled or passed through on the way to work. It was a place where people went on special occasions to celebrate religious festivals, to exchange contracts um, in a a sort of sacred place. It's quite possible that Athenians would have consulted uh, decrees like this on the Acropolis if they wanted to check um, something or if a magistrate wanted to check a regulation was being carried out, or wanted to to prove a point to an Athenian ally that they were doing things in an appropriate manner. So I think that things could be consulted there, but not necessarily read on a day-to-day basis. But there's another possible audience as well, because the Athenians, when they wrote up their decrees on stone, sometimes they introduce depictions, often depictions of the gods. Sometimes they wrote the word meaning gods to perhaps indicate that the decree on stone, written upon stone, was being addressed directly to the gods. Um, So there's a possibility of a divine audience here, that these inscriptions are being written up perhaps so they get divine protection or so that the gods know, or so that the gods are ratifying or um, approving these regulations in some form. So I think it's, it's really important, as you say, to think about the audience um, and not to presume the, that the Athenians would have paid as close attention to all of the details as uh, people like uh, you or I do. Um, when we're reading these things Um, you know people might have said well this is a uh, this is a decree but they might not have exactly known um, uh, what it was about Um, another another important thing to think about when you're when you're asking questions about audience is what do the literary sources say to us about how inscriptions were read so there's a really funny bit in Aristophanes birds where A decree seller has arrived in cloud cuckoo land um, and starts talking about Athenian decrees and uh, one of the um, uh, the allies of the Athenians who's fed up of having these regulations um, talks about um, uh, peeing up against one of the Athenian inscriptions and, and paying disrespect to it in this way so I think it's really important that the, the, the ancient Greeks were aware of the sort of material aspect of these inscriptions as well as the as well as the details. They're, they're symbolic objects uh, uh, which you can insult by using as a urinal um, 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 as well as um, sort of um, repositories of detailed regulations. Okay, shall I move on to the last one now? Um, and so this is a um, an inscription which is now at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Um, it, it's not an Elgin marble. It's from the sort of generation of collectors before Elgin. Um, the person who brought this back from Greece was uh, in the in the eighteenth century, um, known as his, his surname was Dawkins, and he was one of the travelers who went to Greece on the so-called Grand Tour, seeing the big sites of the Eastern Mediterranean in this period, um, and. His interests were very scholarly, so he was interested in the details of the inscriptions, and that's very clear from his accounts. Um, but again, there's a reflection on the significance of imperialism and colonialism and slavery here, because Dawkins was able to fund his grand tour on the basis of his family's cotton plantations in Jamaica, which used slave labour. So I think it's always important when we're asking why inscriptions ended up in UK collections to think about that kind of background as well. So um, the inscription is now on display at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Um, and uh, my colleague Chris Leal and I, we've made a short video about it. So I won't go into details today, but I mean, if you want to find out more about this, have a look at our website, have a look at our YouTube channel on it. It's an Athenian proxy decree for a man called Strato of Sidon. A proxene decree was the award of a special status for a foreigner. Being a proxenos meant that you would represent the interests of the city that made you that award in your home city. So the Athenians have made Strato from Sidon their proxenos. That means Strato, the king of the Sidonians, will represent Athenian interests in his city, he's their proxenos. Um, so Strato is a uh, uh, the king of this city, Sidon. It's a Phoenician city, and it's an indication that of though one of the ways in which the Athenians interacted with non-Greeks in the early fourth century BC, um, the Athenians weren't just interested in um, interacting with other Greeks. They also had to negotiate with the Persians, um, and the Athenians had encountered Strato of Sidon. Sidon is a city in modern Lebanon on their way to. on their their way to negotiate with the Persians, probably in the 380s BC. Um, It also reminds us how much interaction the Athenians had with the Phoenicians. We know that there was a Phoenician community based in Athens, probably involved in trade and commerce. Um, and It reminds us how much the Athenians interacted with non-Greeks and what a cosmopolitan city Athens was in the classical period. Um, looking at the details about it, um, I think I'd highlight two particular points um, about it. First of all, um, again, this is an inscription set up on the Acropolis. That was part of the honour. But also that the Athenians invite the king of the Sidonians to hospitality, Xenia, um, in the city hall the day after this has been um, decreed. Xenia was a sort of ritualised guest friendship that wasn't just particular to Athenian society but was a peculiarity of Greek culture. It's a theme that comes up in the Odyssey for instance where Odysseus um, is shipwrecked for instance um, in the land of the, um, the Phycaeans and um, he appeals to Princess Nausicaa for um, 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 for, uh, uh, as a suppliant and she awards him with Xenia gives him shelter, gives him clothes um, it's a tradition that exists throughout uh, Greek history so it's a good indication of how um, we can tie inscriptions together with literature. If we want to understand what Xenia is, I think it's important not just to remember how it appears in the Odyssey, but also how it appears in inscriptions like this. Let's just ask? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the,
2: the concept of Xenia, um, I think I heard that it is one of the... It's protected by Zeus, isn't it? Zeus is... Uh, kind of a, a god of guest friendship
1: yeah. in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's um that's what uh, Nausicaa talks about in that in that passage in uh, the Odyssey. Um yeah, she um uh, uh talks about Zeus Enios and the uh, the Zeus of um uh, guest friendship. So um yeah, it's something that that runs through Greek religion as well. It's uh, not just a civic value. As it's presented here, but it's one that um, is is very much intertwined with religion too. Um, so yeah, I think that's really that's really helpful because it's always important to remember um, that sometimes inscriptions like this might seem to be sort of secular. Um, uh, transactions, but actually they have a very rich um, religious um, set of ideas behind them too.
0: I think it's quite n- almost neat how this one and the last one, being decree, sort of tied into the idea of not necessarily just being for the people, but also mm. to to have this this extra connection, as it were, to to the gods and to make it almost more. More powerful in itself. One one question I did have just quickly is, um, how common was this practice of of having sort of a representative in Athens in other places? How often do you see this?
1: Yeah, there are there are um, there are dozens of occasions that we see this in the fourth century BC, um, and it's something the Athenians do in the fifth century BC when they have got an empire. Um, and they're militarily powerful, but they also carry on in the fourth in the century BC when they're less militarily powerful. And I think it's something that works very well for both the Athenians and the person they're making the award to, because um, the king of Sidon, the Athenians hoped, would represent Athenian interests back at, when in his home in Lebanon in, in at Sidon. So, he would hopefully, for the Athenians, promote um, favourable trading deals. Sidon um, um, was um, an important city um, for the um, the route of uh, raw materials from the Near East towards Greece. The Greeks would have wanted to sell olive oil and uh, wine to the the Sidonians. So it's in the Athenians' interest, but it's also in Stratone's interest he will hope that if ever he gets into trouble, or if ever the Persian king decides that he doesn't want to support him or have him him as a a puppet ruler, that the Athenians would stick up for him. So it's something that the Athenians and the recipients of this award will find mutually beneficial. And that's the kind of institution that I think in the ancient world is very long lasting. Things that uh, benefit uh not just the giving party but also the receiving party. Um I think that's how how institutions work. They need to be to be beneficial for, for several parties for them to to sustain as um as historical institutions.
0: Mm. It's it's a really interesting way of of setting up and quite a dare I say ov- obvious way of doing it as well. You know, you have a mutually beneficial relationship then you're going to have more stability, you have, like you said, access to trade routes and things like that. So it, it makes perfect sense to have um, a representative like this. Mm. And I think it's quite interesting how it's connected to sort of all the the gold presence and things like that. Because it's yeah, it, I I really like the the decrees in particular because the idea of that they are symbolic as well, yeah. and to give someone this this symbolic title. Mm. Um,
1: yeah. And yeah, yeah. I think it's also interesting that the the Athenians don't seem to make very much of the fact that he is not a Greek. That doesn't seem to bother the Athenians who make this award. Um, So they call him a basilos, which is the word for king, but it's also a word that would be used for Greek kings as well. The Athenians made proxenoi out of Greeks and non-Greeks alike. Um, And it's one of those times when you know, often we think about the importance of the Greek-Barbarian distinction and, and tend to think of of Greek history as a as a set of polarities. But on this occasion, the the distinction between Greek and non-Greek seems to be relatively unimportant. Hmm,
0: that's that's a really good actually, because I remember from um, the the idea of that the the barbarian was basically any non-Greek. You know, yeah. it wasn't necessarily a term for for savages like what we yeah. would think it is literally just anybody
1: yeah. else that's right yeah somebody who doesn't speak uh, the Greek language can be called a barbaros um, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're barbaric in in the sense that we talk about barbaric
0: mm. it's, it's quite a I think it's quite a I don't want to say misused word but I think when it comes to ancient history maybe it is almost a little bit misused
1: yeah well it's one of those words that has obviously i mean the word barbarian has greek roots but it's a word that's taken on um, a Mm. different meaning in in the modern world um um and it's yeah its meaning has 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 developed um and you know there are there are other examples of that. I mean, um, the ancient Greek word demokratia, for instance, is another word um, that had one meaning in in antiquity um, and another meaning today. Um, In antiquity, it refers to the rule of the demos, um, which means the adult male citizens, um, whereas we think of democracy as um, the rule of the people, um, which includes um, adult males and females, it's something uh, slightly, well, significantly different.
0: Mm, Yeah. So I guess, um, unless there's anything else you'd particularly like to add. um...
1: You might have heard enough about Athenian inscriptions for the moment. Sorry, Jordan.
2: Uh, I, I suppose my last question about this particular inscription would be, did it come to fruition do we know anything about what happened whether the, the
1: fruits of the labors were? that's a very good question and it's one i need to do a bit more thinking about actually um so uh when I used to teach this period of history with Polly Lowe at Manchester University, she used to do the she used to teach the bit on the three eighties and the Greek uh, interaction with the Persian Empire in the three eighties. So um, I um, I'm a bit rusty on that particular bit of history, but I think it's worth saying that uh, I mean, and I think in answer to your question, um, that Stratton was a successful king. Um, he seems to have been commemorated in ways. Um, that befits a king in good standing. He wasn't disgraced. I think, also in answer to your question, that this monument gives us the Athenian perspective. The Athenians are making out that this is a really important transaction. That's why it's written upon this quite nice piece of marble and put up on the Acropolis. But what we aren't quite so clear about is whether this was really important to Straton um, it's important to not be sort of Athenocentric here, and to remember that an honor from the Athenians might not have been as important to Strato of Sidon as it was to the Athenians. The Athenians may have been, to him, a small community on the, on the edge of the known world. Some people that, you know, uh, want to be involved in our, on our, in our commercial trade, but actually they're, they're relatively unimportant. Um the, well, um, the um, for the Athenians, I mean I think we know that they carried on trading with with uh, the Sidonians. So it was probably a good and successful deal for them, but um, it might not have been quite as important to the to the Sidonians um, as the Athenians would have liked us or would like us to think.
0: Hmm. that's quite an interesting idea that this is you know this is just the Athenian view might be quite interesting to see Mm -hmm. if there was a Sidonian view yeah
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um yeah that's that's a really important question to ask um and um my colleague Krista Leal um who has um published the um the paper on this inscription so this is it's called Ayok 11 which meet which stands for attic inscriptions in uk collections volume 11 it's number one um, that would be the place i would start if you wanted to find out more about this inscription and whether it was you know worth doing for the athenians um, chris has written uh, at length about this in that particular volume so i think that would be the place to look
0: Excellent. Well, I guess my final question for you then is, uh, what what is next for your project?
1: Well, uh, there are lots of lots of things that are uh, uh, up and coming. One is a new part of our of the Attic Inscriptions online website, which is called Attic Inscriptions Education, and it consists of resources for school teachers, primary school teachers, Key Stage three and four, so GCSE and A level resources which are designed to address elements of the Ancient History and Classical Civilization syllabus through Athenian inscriptions. We're launching that, and we're offering a teacher's training day on the 5th of June, on um, ancient Athenian inscriptions. And we've got a number of videos that we're making for our YouTube channel. And Polly Lowe and I are also finishing off um, a few more of the scholarly publications. We're going to publish before the end of the year, um, the dedications which are now kept at the British Museum, the inventories and accounts which are collected at the British Museum, we're going to publish the uh, two Athenian inscriptions in Edinburgh very soon. Um, and also we're going to publish a final volume on the lost inscriptions, uh, the lost Athenian inscriptions that were once in the UK, because as well as the ones that ended up in the, the big museums or collections which still exist. There are also a number of ancient Athenian inscriptions that we know were brought to the UK in the 18th and 19th centuries but have now disappeared. Um, If possible we'd like to track those down but um, that's a very hard thing to do um, and many of them have just vanished without trace but we're hoping to collect the evidence for them in that final uh, paper in our series.
0: Excellent. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of things coming up on your plate then. Um, I just want to say thank you very much for, for talking to us. It's been, I, I found this really interesting. And oh, thanks. Like to thank, to... You thank you for the invitation. we mm, hold
2: uh, it? I think it would be worth mentioning for those listening, though, just a reminder, um, to, if you want to look at the, these inscriptions, uh, the website is www.atticinscriptions.com, uh, Attic with double T. Um, and also to go and look at the Attic Inscriptions Online YouTube channel.
0: Mm, there's some excellent stuff on there. I definitely didn't spend most of my afternoon when I should have been doing lectures watching them instead.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much.
0: Wonderful. Well, I unfortunately, we have to leave it there. So I will say uh, thank you very much. And, uh, Thanks for your question. Hopefully see you again soon. Thanks
1: see you soon.